Um, Ed Welch is going to be joining us uh, as our guest speaker February 10th. And if you don't know Ed Welch, you need to know Ed Welch. Uh, he has been massively used by God in uh, the Christian community, in the unchristian community, um, through his writings, through his speaking. Uh, he really does most of his works with David Pallison and Paul David Tripp. Uh, maybe you are familiar with him. Uh, he's written uh, a number of articles. We've given out books. Uh, I know your pa- I want you to know your pastors have benefited richly from his ministry and life. So he has uh, agreed graciously uh, to come and join us on Sunday, February 10th. So uh, he'll be teaching on things like fear and anxiety and how do we have a biblical framework for those things. I know no one in this room has issues with those, so we'll probably have no one here. Uh, but if you do have fear and anxiety and control issues or if you have any sin in you at all, you should be here, all right? So uh, it's going to be a great Sunday where we hear from him. Mark your calendars uh, for that. Okay, as we, as we uh, head into this morning, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to tell you where we're headed in 2019, and I'm going to give a one-off sermon, which I'd never do this morning, okay? So let's get ready. Father, thank you that uh, we have your word. Thank you that we get to uh, know what you've said. Thank you for being a God who speaks and doesn't stay silent, and thank you for being a God that reveals himself uh, and does not uh, ask us to blindly look for you. Thank you that reveal, you reveal yourself in creation, in the conscience, most profoundly in Christ, and that you've given us your word to see all that we need to know about you. Would you encourage us, strengthen us, give us hope, give us endurance, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we're going to go since I got, I mean, my inbox is always full, but it was really full, and I was actually encouraged by this because you all care so much about where we're headed uh, in the sermon series. So uh, usually the Holy Spirit isn't this late, isn't this delayed in kind of letting me know where uh, he wants to go. We're always trying to seek, God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to teach? What do you want us to say? Uh, What's good for the church? What might not be helpful for the church? What might be a good thing in a future season, but not this particular season? And so uh, starting next Sunday, Sunday, uh, the Holy Spirit called it audible, actually, as I was driving back from family in Virginia after Christmas um, and, and said, we're going to do six weeks in Ephesians 6 uh, to look at Satan, demons, and the spiritual war and all that that entails. So we're gonna, it's going to be called Stand. We're going to spend six weeks in Ephesians 6 uh, looking at all those beautiful truths there. Then we're going to look at the prayers of Jesus for about four to five weeks. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at, um, I don't know, where else did he pray? John 17. Sorry, it's terrible. You're like, you're a pastor. You should know that. Um, John 17. It's my series, too. John 17, uh, where he prays the high priestly prayer. We're going to look at those different prayers, what we can learn from watching Jesus pray. Uh, because we're burdened to see us grow in our prayers as a church. And then we're going to hit First John. First John will take us to the summer. And then do you still want, you still want, yeah, you do. Okay, so the summer seems like God's going to lead us into Proverbs. Here's why. Um, because the Bible's filled with walking in wisdom. Um, the Bible will repeatedly uh, lay before you that, that this Christian life, you walk wisely with outsiders. You, you ask God for wisdom who gives generously to all who ask. So uh, we want to look at wisdom with your wealth, wisdom with relationships, wisdom with your marriage, wisdom with work, wisdom with environments, circumstances, the, the state of our culture. We want to look at how do we walk wisely, faithfully, repentantly in those. Uh, and then I've got the fall already, but I'm not going to tell you. So uh, here's, here's what we got. I've got to leave something, okay? Okay, for that. So happy New Year. So how many of you guys made New Year's resolutions? We're going to do a one-off today. So this is, this is a, something that, that God put on my heart for this morning. But how many of you guys made New Year's resolutions? Seriously? One? Two? Okay, you're all lying. Okay, so from all of you who made New Year's resolutions of some kind, okay, how many of you guys already screwed up? 
and, and, and broke them. Yeah, good. The only honest one in the back. So um, everyone who made resolutions probably screwed up in some way, shape, or form, or you did not perfectly. We're only a week in. Hey, I wanted to work out every day, and you haven't even been to the gym yet. So it's, it's this weird thing. This is what I was thinking about with New Year's resolutions, this time where we are just nostalgic in, in making promises, and we're gonna, this is going to be the year. We're going to strive after things we haven't stri- strived for. We're going to go hard after God. Those are all good things to chase, but here's my concern. Here's what I want to remind us of is I feel like New Year's resolutions and grace don't really mix. And here's why. You kind of set up yourself so that if at the end of the year, man, you nailed all the resolutions you had, you feel great about you. And then if you totally bombed on them, then you feel terrible about you. And there's this entire focus on you instead of the grace of God. So this whole year is going to be built on, am I going to achieve what I want to achieve? Am I going to fail at what I try to achieve? Instead of the focus being on you, it should be on God and his grace. And even when you stumble and fall, he fills the gap. Um, and that's why there, there's, listen, there's, a, there's, there's meaning in striving and chasing. And the Bible will absolutely give you texts. You're supposed to do and be active. Our faith is an active faith. But there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. Um, and so the reason I say that is because um, I'm still back in the book of Galatians. I don't, I don't know if, if you moved on to Advent. We taught through Advent, but in my mind and my heart, Galatians was such a sweet series to walk through. Um, and one of the things that was special by God is it was one of our most downloaded, most listened to, and most responsive series we've ever done uh, in our short five years together as a church. Um, but here was one of the most common questions that came up out of that series, and I just want to talk through it with you this morning because it came up so much. Um, and this is basically the question, if I could just kind of uh, give you the cliff note version is, okay, if, if I heard all about grace, if grace starts my salvation and grace continues my salvation and grace finishes my salvation, there seems to be some confusion as to how do I mature then? Like, how do I grow in Christ? And not just, how do I grow in Christ? How do I go hard after holiness? How do, I, how do I chase good works without falling back into legalism or moralism and try to earn what's already freely been given? You following? Is anyone agree? Good, I see some head shaking. Okay, so, so that seemed to be the question. So I just want to talk through this morning, give us a few things to, to hang our hats on. Because um, if you're asking that question, everyone asks that question. I mean, the writers of the, of the scriptures talk about that question. Man, if, if this is all given by grace, if we know Ephesians 2, that, that grace is through faith and it's a gift. You can't have nothing to boast in when you stand before the, the throne of judgment. And then, then how do I strive for good works? I mean, I don't want to turn into a legalist. I don't want to be licentious. And I don't want to be moralistic. And I don't want to veer from or, or try to earn this grace that God freely forever gives. Um, what does that look like? Because you got plenty of texts in the Bible. Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you. You have, um, you have Ephesians 4 that says, walk in this new life. You have Titus 2 that says, grace is a tutor that teaches you how to obey and how to live rightly. Plenty of texts. You have Romans 8 that says, put to death the deeds of the body. So what I want to answer this morning is by talking about what I call holy sweat. Now, maybe some of you have heard me use that language, that word. Honestly, don't remember where I heard it. Puritans may have said it at one point. Either way, I stole it. It's awesome. It's a good phrase. It's really helped me in my walk with Jesus. And, and here's what holy sweat implies. Um, holy sweat implies that um, you're sweating, so there's, there's activeness. There's, there's doing. You're chasing. You're going after something, but there's a holiness to it. Now, 
Holy means it's all empowered, sustained, and driven by the gospel of grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's a, there's a holy way to go after God and go after good works and go after holiness, and there's an unholy way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. There's a, there's a way in which you step outside the bounds of grace and you start falling back into this moralistic living. And um, there's a text I get this term from, I think, Pastor Peter, I think he might have mentioned this even last Sunday, 1 Corinthians 10, 15. He didn't know it, but God's Spirit was at work setting him up for my sermon. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Um, if you read 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, basically Paul is just unpacking how the gospel of Jesus Christ bears weight on the covenant community of faith, um, how it bears itself in relationships and in marriage and in uh, just your understandings of ministry and idols and uh, these, these freedoms you have in Christ. He, he shows how the gospel bears its weight on the community of faith. And what he basically says here, which is awesome, is... Um, all that good that I even accomplished, even all of that was not from me. It was from the gospel of grace. Um, even though I worked harder than anyone, man, I chased him. I chased good works. But at the end of the day, it's awesome. It's God's grace, not my moralism. So you see this dichotomy even in the scriptures. So how do we do that? How does holy sweat work? Um, I just want to give you four things to hang your hat on. Um, and, and I wrote down like 17 this week, and I was like, that's going to be a five-week sermon, so I'm just going to give you four. If you want more, you can email me, uh, but this is the four that, that I just felt like this is what I want to share with you that's helped me, uh, that God might use it. And let me just say, for some of us, this may be a bit of a reminder, um, but, but can I remind you that your maturing in Jesus Christ, your growing in godliness is inextricably connected to you practicing the things that you already know. Like, we all just want some new big theology, right? But, but most of your growing, almost every bit of me maturing in Christ is connected to what I've already been told and what I need to be reminded of. So number one, holy sweat is birthed from a new heart and a new mind. You have to start here. Um, we're given a new heart and a new mind in the gospel. First Peter 2 says you're transferred out of this kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. Right? First Corinthians will say that you were once dead, now you're walking right, as alive. Ephesians 2, Colossians 1. So many texts show this, this imagery of there's this regeneration that happens. You are justified, declared righteous, and then you're, you're regenerated, which means you're made new. Right? Jesus is not into transforming behavior. He's into transforming lives. Right? He's not about just training you and making you moral. He's about making you totally new. That's why we always say the gospel's good news, not for people who think they need to be made nicer, but need to be made new. That's awful news, that you get to be a tweaked version of your old self. I mean, who wants that? Right? I mean, I need a literal, complete transformation. And so uh, we see this all throughout the scriptures. Um, Nicodemus came to Jesus, right? and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, be born again, right? You need to be born of the Spirit, not just through natural birth. You need rebirth. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2. Just listen to this text. 
verses 12 to 16. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All of a sudden, in regeneration, 1 Corinthians 2, you have a mind and heart that longs to love Jesus, know Jesus, and make much of Jesus. You cannot manufacture that out of an unredeemed heart. Like, you cannot manufacture your Christianity. You, you can appear to look like it. You can do a lot of Christian things, but you cannot manufacture what it means to be made new. You need to be regenerated. Man, you need the gospel to wake you up and give you eyes and give you new heart and give you new mind before you ever enter into, man, how do I please him now? Like the whole point of the gospel is you haven't pleased him and he pleased himself for you in Christ. Right, so, so you have to start with you've got to have a new heart and a new mind. And li listen to Colossians 2.13. This will be on the screen. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So once you've been made new... Once you were dead and now alive, once you had a record of debt that's now been canceled, once you had these legal demands against a holy God that Christ stood in the gap for, you had wrath rightly towards you, a judgment rightly coming, and Christ appeased all that for you. You're spotless, blameless, above reproach in his sight by no work of your own, but by the work of Jesus Christ alone. Now let's move. Now let's work. Now let's pursue. So, so here's the thing. You know, in... 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says that text, you probably used it or heard it taught at least a few times. There's no temptation that's not common to man. But when you enter it, God is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape. Now, you're usually taught or usually hear that text explained as God's not going to put you in a situation that you can't handle. Yeah, you all know what I'm talking about, right? So, so here's the imagery here. God's looking down at Mike Reed going, oh, he didn't have enough equipping for that, so I'm not going to put him there. He'll get swallowed up. That, that's not what that text is saying. You've got to read that text in light of all texts. So, so in light of Colossians 2 and every other text of Scripture, what the Bible really says, what he's really getting at in that text is... You, because you've been given a new heart and a new mind, there's no situation you can't get out of. It's not that God's avoiding things and only putting you in places where you're cozy. The, the, the herald of Scripture from beginning to end is because you have a new heart and a new mind, you can say no to sin and you can say yes to Jesus. It doesn't matter what situation you're put in. Like, God's not, like, doing that in, in watchfulness. And so, so here's what's so encouraging about this is you got to remember in holy sweat that you have a new mind and a new heart. That you've been regenerated. That, that's the first step, that you're not a slave to sin. That you, it's not just forsaking sin. You realize you're dead to sin. Unless, if you don't understand that, you will not be able to see holiness in your life. 
And this is what the text is getting at. And so here it's an understanding that you have a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, and you understand there is no situation that has authority and power over you any longer. I don't care what it is. I don't care what you're faced with. It's not up to God to be watchful how he organizes your life. It's you realizing who you are in Christ and acting accordingly. And realizing, no, this sin does not have authority over me. Temptation does not have power over me. This thing is not more tasteful and more satisfying than Jesus. I absolutely can say no to that, and I absolutely can say yes to Jesus. And every time you do that, the well of his goodness begins to bubble up inside you. Talk to anyone who's been walking with Jesus for years on end faithfully. They don't have something special you don't have. They have the same thing. The regeneration of God in Christ. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. So holy sweat knows that you're no longer dead, but you're alive. It knows that. It's the first step. Now, for the legalist, the one who does unholy sweat, this is simply not true. They can't do this. They can't say yes to Christ and no to their sin at the end of the day. Um, They really just pursue God or pursue morality out of a list of things not because they have a new heart and a new mind. This is even common in Christian circles. You get in Christian circles, and, and, and if you do the right things, you earn stock, you earn clout, and so really the motivation is the applause of man, not Jesus Christ. It has little to nothing to do with him and everything to do with, I just want to look like this community. I just want to look like these people around me. So there's a difference in that. Secondly, holy sweat not only is given a new heart and a new mind, It's birthed by that. Secondly, Holy Sweat uses the weapons of the gospel. When you become a Christian, here's what's awesome. When you become a Christian, when you trust in Christ, you have an immediate arsenal available to you. Now, here's what what you got to get, though. The, The ammo to walk in holiness, though, is never you. It's given to you. Right? So these weapons you get are not your vitality and your vigor and your you know, angst and angst and all that you're trying to force out of you, it's been given to you. So let me just give you a few. One, you've been given the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to actually look at your life through the lens of this weapon of the gospel that is yours. Look at Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's unsaved, that's living apart from God, that's living in glad rebellion against God, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Not brought near by your church attendance. Not brought near by how well you behave. Not brought near by the, the loving thoughts you had towards terrorists. You're not brought near to God by anything except blood that was shed. Hebrews says that there's no forgiveness of sin unless the shedding of blood happens, that which is blameless and holy and pure. And so the shedding of blood brings you near. I love this text because it constantly reminds me in my failings, I've been brought near not by my studying this week, not by how well I shepherded and pastored, but solely by the blood of Jesus Christ. If I forget that, I'm off the wagon, I'm into moralism, and I'll try to do things to merit and earn what God's already freely given me. So you have to literally recall these weapons you have in your arsenal. How are you saved? By you? No, by the blood. Jesus sees the blood so you're holy, spotless, and blameless. He does not see any ounce of what you do or how you act and say, holy, spotless, blameless. You've got text for evidence of that. So he loves me, sees me as spotless, perfect, adopted. Holy sweat strives for holiness by looking at the blood of Christ. You're not looking at you. 
You're looking at the blood. Another weapon is the Holy Spirit. We, we looked at this extensively in Galatians, especially Galatians 5, 16 to 17, where it says, live by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh, right, for they're contrary to one another. This is remembering that you have access. When you were raised with Christ, he not only sees you as holy, chosen, spotless, but then he takes up residence in you and puts a new nature in you. You need to believe you've been given the ability to say no to sin and yes to him. And I use the analogy, right, of that, that treadmill, right? How there's so many Christians walking around acting as if they don't have him. And it's like you want to lose weight in the new year. And so your wife gets you a treadmill or your husband gets you a treadmill. And you just stare at it for six months and you go and complain to Sears because it doesn't work. And the guy's going, did you get on it? No. Well, that's why you're still fat. I'm sorry. Like that's, I mean, that's why you're not losing weight. You're not getting on the treadmill. Like you're not, you're not doing anything. You have access to it. It's in your possession. It's in your home. But, but why don't you get on it? Why don't you access it? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have appealed to the help of the Holy Spirit in moments that could have sent me down dangerous pathways, dangerous roads. Literally, my ministry has been saved if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. I'm with you. I don't have any different skin. I don't have any different blood flowing through me, but I got access to the same power that you have and the Holy Spirit of God. When was the last time you actually appealed to the help of the Holy Spirit? Actually did it. You actually stopped and reminded yourself of who lives in you and who took up residence. Our faith is very active, but it's active in the arsenal given to us, not in the arsenal that you think is you. Look at first, or listen to 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit he has given us. So to be with Jesus, to be his is to obey his word, First John says, which is first and foremost to trust in Jesus Christ to be saved, but to be his now is not simply to be moral. He doesn't say that. To be his is not simply to have good feelings about Jesus. He says it means giving him allegiance. Here's what's beautiful. When you give Jesus allegiance at your conversion, your home is no longer empty. He takes up residence. He says you know this by the Holy Spirit which he has given you. So you're either an empty house, an empty flesh possessed by your own flesh, possessed by your own sin, possessed by the principalities of this world, or you are possessed by, you are reigned by, you are informed by a new resident truth teacher that took up residence in your house. Now, here's why that is so important to get. Attempting to clean up your life without allowing Christ to take up residence in you is even more dangerous than the first. You just trying to clean up your life without the residency of the Holy Spirit is so dangerous. You're just being led by you. You're not being led by the Holy Spirit. This is why the unholy sweat, the legalist, he doesn't look at the blood of Christ. He doesn't press into the power of the Holy Spirit. He uses his own vows and his own will, and he looks at the law as a way to either gain life or lose his life. And here's the irony about this. Some people try to find freedom by breaking all the rules. Some people try to find freedom by keeping all the rules. Um, regardless of who you are, both scream out, I don't need God. 
and both find you lacking on the day of judgment. So holy sweat pursues godliness, remembering who he is because of the blood and appeals to the spirit, not his own ability. Another great weapon is God's promises. God's promises. This is not exhaustive, by the way. Your arsenal is loaded infinitely. But God's promises. I mentioned to you back in Galatians, there's a promise I love in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says the pure in heart will see God. It's a promise. And when I'm in moments of temptation, I will literally say to myself, the pure in heart will see God. Like I want to see him. I want to see, I mean, how, don't you want to see him? Like, don't you want to taste him? Don't you want to just know what his infinite perfections are like and his glory, what it really means to be satisfied in him? Don't you, don't you want that? If you're a Christian, you do. So that, that, that enables me, believing his promise, to say no to something. And there's another great text about the new covenant in Hebrews 9, 15. It says, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, under the first covenant, under the law, everybody fails. We're all unclean. No one upholds the law. It's why the commands of Scripture are not just to show you that there's great delight and fullness of joy in following them, but to show you that you can't keep those and need someone to intervene for you. And we see in this text that where we have failed and earned the wrath of God, Christ has stood. That's the promise. So we're in the new covenant because we are spotless and clean because of Jesus. This is why I want to remind you your understanding of the gospel is most tested when you fall. Not just what you believe about Christ and his work is not mostly in highest seen when you're crushing it. It's when you stumble and fall because, because unholy sweat, immaturity responds with God hates me. He wants nothing to do with me. I'm condemned. I'm a failure. Woe is me. That's immaturity. That's a lack of understanding. That's unholy sweat. Holy sweat sees their struggle and goes, hold on. He sees me because of the blood of Christ. I was brought near, not because of my actions. He's given me the power of the Holy Spirit. He has promised me the new covenant that I'm spotless and clean, even though I've not upheld any bit of his commands, not because of what I've done, but because he knew I'd stumble and fall, so he would gladly pick me up. Man, there is fuel for you in your failings and stumblings. Now, all of a sudden, that creates worship and intimacy into Christ as you're overwhelmed by his great love for you in those moments where you feel so lost. All of a sudden there's power. All of a sudden there's authority. All of a sudden there's meaning to the cross of Christ. And so watch a, a mature Christian over the years. It's what they do when they stumble and fall that reveals powerfully what they believe about this great gospel of grace. If it's really about grace, you have every reason to stand up. If it's really about grace, you have every reason to put your hand to the plow. If it's really about grace, you have every reason not to feel forgotten, but to feel secure and safe. That's what he's getting at in that promise in Hebrews 9. I mean, listen, grace cannot prevail. Like you, it cannot be your default posture that Christ loves me finally and fully and freely forever. 
until you get in your head and heart the understanding that God moves from judge to dad. Like, like, and I've, I've talked about this. Like, him being judged brings great relief when he stands in the gap of the justification. That does not bring intimacy. But him being my father... That brings intimacy, but that can't happen without the justifying work of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stay judge. He moves to Father. You're the Spirit, and you now cries out, Abba, Father. Here, when, when kids stumble and fall, who do they run to? Their parents. They run to their parents. Good parents, loving parents. Man, that, that's, that's the posture we should take. Holy sweat understands our position now in Christ, that he's Father, that he's good, that he's loving, that he, that he cares for us. There's intimacy now, and this is why often we don't do this, and unholy sweat appears. We do not take forth the weapons of the gospel. You try to birth forth the weapons that you think you have. So here's what happens um, often is we want to fight a certain sin in our life, and you don't press headlong into Jesus. You don't appeal to the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't remember God's promises, and you don't look at the weapons of the blood in Christ. You know what you do? You take another sin to try to defeat that sin to make you feel better. So you set up the fight. So let's say you, you, I don't know, lust is your issue or chronic viewing of pornography or, and you know what you do? You're going to beat this thing, right? So you know what you, you, you war against it with? Your pride and your self-righteousness. Not the weapons of the gospel, not the power of the Holy Spirit. And so at the end of the day, you know the problem with that? Sin wins both times. So what? I got no need for Jesus, but I'll just stop doing this. I'll put all the parameters up, put all the hedges up, just get in the bunker, be a monk. I just will avoid sin at all costs. There's no pursuit towards anyone, and you think you're clean. No, you've just bolstered and reaffirmed the reason Christ needed to become because sin is idolatry at its root. And you want to worship yourself, and you want to be self-righteous, and you want to be prideful. You want to show everyone that I can beat this thing. I got news for you. You can't. You can for a season, but it's weeds. You got to go with the root, not just trim branches. You know, when you go out on your yard, and you're just mowing over the weeds. What happened two weeks later? Weeds are back. Makes you so frustrated, right? So, so many of us do that with our sin. You can't mow over weeds. You got to get at the root, and the root comes by using the weapons of the gospel. Maybe your struggles, anxiety, fear... So what you do is to overcome your anxiety and fear, you use manipulation and control. Well, okay, now sin has still won. And then when you realize, oh my gosh, I'm trying to manipulate my spouse, manipulate my kids, manipulate circumstances, then fear and anxiety just starts all over again. Instead of leaning into the weapons of the gospel and remembering who Christ is and his authority and the power of the Holy Spirit and that you're safe with him and all the promises he's given you to protect you and watch over you and care for you. You see the difference? Very different way. Very different way to approach him and to lean into him. Oh, this is everything in the Christian walk. I like the next one because it's contrary to what most of us have been taught. Number three, holy sweat repents instead of cleaning a conscience. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I just laughed. Um, it's not motivated by that when you, when you sin, you feel bad about you. Like, that's not Christianity. It's not, oh, woe is me. Oh, I hate myself because I made a mess of myself. That's not what it, that's not what, it, holy sweat is very, very different. It's not motivated that you feel bad about you. It's that you're so grieved, that you so 
defamed and belittled the God who made you in his image. Right? That, that's what it really is. It's it made you're so grieved that you've harmed the image of God, that you belittled his glory. That, that's where true change happens. So holy sweat doesn't say, I need to change because when I do these things, I feel bad about me. Holy sweat is built upon a heart that breaks because God has been so good and so merciful and so gracious to you that when we see what we've done in our actions and attitudes, we go, against you have I sinned. You've offended him. Man, this is Psalm 51. David caught in adultery, and he doesn't go, woe is me. He goes, man, against you only have I sinned. Man, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her father. He sinned against all, all these other people, but he knew primarily the sin was vertical before it was ever horizontal. He knew that he needed to turn from that. I got a text for this, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I love it. Paul makes a distinction. There's, there's godly grief, sorrow, and worldly sorrow. This is good for you to do a good heart examination on. When you, when you stumble and fall, when you, when you sin against someone, you just have the, 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 the bad one is worldly grief because that just produces death. That's the one where, um, and Paul says, be careful because you can look at that and think it's repentance. Look, he's crying. He must be repenting. Look, he's sad. She's sad. They're grieved. They feel remorse. It starts with remorse, but it moves beyond that. It goes much deeper than saying Sorry. It's a change of life. Repentance means, metaneo, to turn in the head and the heart. Turn away from the way you're going and turn towards Jesus. And we talked about this on Christmas Eve, right, a little bit. That we're born believing that living apart from God, walking away from God, is the highest good. Autonomy. Live independently. Live autonomously. That's why repentance is such a beautiful gift. It's a work of faith. It's even probably a weapon of the gospel that he's given us where we turn and face God, quorum Deo. That, that we don't live apart from him. We realize the best place to be is with him and under him and for him. And so in your sin, you turn towards him and run to him knowing you've been freed and forgiven and you're safe. You don't run away from him. You don't live apart from him. Repentance means there's change. Repentance takes a turning which is why I said sin is much more a life direction than an action. I hear people all, all say all the time, well, I haven't lied, cheat, murdered, steal, stolen. I'm like, yeah, I know, but what sin have I committed? You live apart from God. That's essentially what sin is. That's Adam and Eve. Before they ever partook of the tree, they forsook in direction. They wanted to head a different direction. They didn't live with their face towards God. So, Understand the motivation for putting sin to death and pursuing holiness is not that you might simply ease your own conscience and still live apart from God. Repentance and holy sweat says, I want to live facing God, loving God, being under God, remembering what he's done for, for me. Lastly, finally, and I would argue most importantly, holy sweat is not mostly about what you do, but who you pursue. 2 Timothy is a great text. I had to memorize this when I was, a, I think, a junior in high school. I was with some guys. This youth leader took us under his wing, and it was easy because it was 2-2-2-2. Two, 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 two. I needed a lot of help growing up, so he goes, here, here's one easy for you, Mike. Just remember, 2-2-2-2, two, 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 two. and there's fleeing and there's pursuing. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
Holy sweat doesn't just avoid sin. It pursues a person. Hope is a person. Salvation is a person. So many of you are just running away from sin. That's mindless. That's pointless. It's exhausting. You need to pursue Christ. As you turn away from sin and push into Christ, the more you push into him, it begins to break the authority and power of those chains that hold dominion in your life. But if you're just staring at your sin, you're going to get swallowed up. Christ is nowhere in the equation. I mean, so many Christians, Christ is nowhere in the equation. It's just positive thinking or better psychology or better philosophy. or No, Christ, the one who made you alive, the one who shed his blood, the one who appeased wrath, the one who is your authority, the one who has authority over all cosmic powers, rulers, and authorities, the one who every knee will bow to. He's there. He's yours. He's giving you all that he has in the gospel, and you don't pursue him. You stare at you. Get your eyes off of you in the Christian walk. See him, pursue him, push headlong into him through the community of faith, through fellowship, through reading, through prayer, through get under someone who's wiser, more godly, and has a longer track record than you. Man, read faithful brothers and sisters. Man, get towards those things that will stir up in your mind him and get your eyes off of you. That's what it means to pursue him. That's how grace fuels this work and this wonder that God does in us. And here's how this connects and is so important to the stumbling and falling. Because the sign of moralistic living is when you stumble, you run away from him and try to clean yourself up and then come back to him. Here's what that creates. This weird dichotomy that you only go to him when you feel like you're good. And you don't go to him when you feel like you're bad. And yet grace shows us we run to him. Because he's adopted us. Holy sweat says, I've failed him again, but how good is he that he loves me even in this? How good is he that he loves me still? How good is he that he calls me his own still? Which leads to greater intimacy as we're more aware of his love. As he continues to love you in your failures and shortcomings. Jesus, in John 15, says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He doesn't say that to mean you merit righteousness by obedience. He simply says obedience to his commands, affirm that you're his. Man, you're striving for him. You're looking at him. You haven't looked at you. You've been looking at the commands he's given you as good, as your new father, no longer your judge. That's why people all the time say, man, how come the cults are so much more committed than Christians? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're so much more committed. They're not more committed. They have to do those things. They have to do them if they're going to get that level of heaven or 70 virgins or that status they're trying to achieve. They're actually enslaved to this system that says you better do these things if you want this desired result. When the Christian faith teaches something totally different, grace teaches something totally different. There's a God that loves you in spite of your actions. That you're a slave who's loved not only when he does what is right, but a son and daughter that's loved even when you greatly rebel. And he goes, man, that should produce love and intimacy. That's Romans 2, 4. I thought my kindness would produce repentance in you. I thought my love would produce repentance in you. So it's not fear driving this. It's intimacy driving this. It's God's not judge. God is Father. Here's a piece that you have to understand if you're ever going to seriously obey 
while simultaneously feeling totally safe in God's arms. You ready? It's the most profound theology that you have ever heard. He loves you. And he even likes you. Did you know that? Some of you wanted something bigger. There's nothing bigger. He loves you. No conditions. If you just sat in that for a little while, what does that do to you? You know, Benjamin Warfield, amazing theologian. I think he died around 1921. He wrote commentaries. He knew the depths of text that men had not yet uncovered. And he was asked on his deathbed, Benjamin, what is the greatest truth you've found in all your meditations, in all the commentaries that you've written, in all your theological studies, in all that you've thought about? Tell us the most grand, the most high theology. And he said to them moments before he died, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's ask God for help. Lord, we need to be reminded of the basics of Christianity. We need to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ, the weapons that are at our disposal. We need to be reminded that you've gifted repentance, that repentance brings about forgiveness of sin. You say that when you arrive. John the Baptist, out of his own lips, repent for forgiveness of sin, for the kingdom of God is near. It was near because Christ had come. God, I pray you'd forgive us for not pursuing you, for thinking Christianity means we pursue everything but you. And this might seem so obvious to us, but God, how many of us are not living that way, are not walking that way. God, would you free us from our moralism? Would you free us from our desire to build up our resume and present works before you as a way to earn what you've already freely and fully and finally given us in the gospel. Would you help us, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit to be men and women and families that enjoy grace so much that it actually transforms us? Father, would you help us remember that we have been born again. We have a new mind and a new heart. God, would you remind us of the weapons that are at our disposal in the gospel? Would you remind us of the importance of repentance and living as a Christian, not simply clearing our conscience? Would you remind us, Father, that we pursue, we don't just do Spirit, I'm just going to ask that you would do a profound work in our lives this year. That we would be marked by grace. That we would be men and women that understand more and more in increasing measure how to strive for holiness that is built inside of us as you take up residence. That we would be aware of when we're falling into moralistic behavior or leaning on our actions as a way to earn and merit your free forgiveness in Christ. And God, remind us as we take the supper, maybe such a sweet meal this morning together, that your blood and body 
is what accomplished it in fullness and finality so that we might enjoy you as dad and no longer judge. Use us, help us, heal us, provoke us, encourage us, exhort us, convict us. In Jesus' name, amen.